I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! And tame, and tame again. Break up the music! Charge a glass! This nation is going to dance all night! The magical 2,900 point mark. Random foreign language vocabulary you've absorbed through football. Kink shaming the thrill of a 50-50 challenge between players wearing the same shirt number. The innocent but mandatory stepovers of a centre-back who finds himself out on the wing. The absolute ongoing disgrace of teams not bothering to attack in first-half injury time. And our innocent mid-December naivety about the competitiveness of the yet-to-unravel title race. Brought to your ears by Goalhanger Podcasts. This is Football Clichés and your Mesut Harland Dicks. Hello everyone and welcome to Football Clichés. I'm Adam Hurry and with me to pick through your footballing fascinations and irritations are of course Charlie Eccleshare and David Walker. How are you both? Very well. Yeah, good. Big news though, before we start. The pod is back, of course, heroically, and now the live show is coming back as well. We're taking a brand new live show on the road in 2024 Six dates for you to choose from. We'll be kicking things off on Thursday, the 29th of February. A leap year, no less. Manchester Academy 2. Friday, 1st of March, Birmingham Old Rep. Tuesday, the 5th of March, a return to Dublin's Liberty Hall. Friday, 8th of March, Leeds Wardrobe. Monday, 11th of March, Bristol's 1532. And finishing off at London's Union Chapel on Tuesday, the 12th of March. Our biggest tour yet, Dave. Have we bitten off more than we can chew? Well, remains to be seen. I do think we have some unfinished business after the last show that we did in Leeds. So we're returning to Leeds, which is great. But good to go to Birmingham and Bristol. Not been there before. What, in your life? (laughs) No, no, many times in both places, but we've never performed there before, have we? Good to broaden your horizons then. That's good. (laughs) Which one stands out for you, Charlie? I, you know, maybe it's the it's the big old one, the big one, the big one at Union Chapel. I mean, Union Chapel is the, the equivalent of you know, grew up with posters on my bedroom. All when right. I say grew up, I mean went there quite a lot in my twenties. So that that is particularly exciting. But yeah, I mean, especially yeah, those cities we haven't yet done, Birmingham, Bristol. But excited to do them all. It's going to be brilliant. Um, our live show is cooking away in the background already. Got some absolute gold. I can't wait. It's going to be great, great fun. Tickets go on sale uh, today as you listen to this podcast, I believe. So um, head to myticket.co.uk. We'll put the direct link to the tickets in the pod description as well. Or just wait for our relentless promotion of it over the next two months, really. We're going to go full Rushton on this. You'll be left in no doubt where to buy tickets. Let's put it that way. Right. Before we do Mesut Harland Dicks with you, the listeners, for December, the very, very last one of 2023, let's do a bit of adjudication panelling for this lovely Thursday. First of all, hot on the heels of Jonathan Pierce rolling out casually a Hellenistic Greek proverb in his uh, BBC Radio 5 live commentary. Sky's Gary Taphouse for Watford versus Ipswich referenced the very same phrase, there's many a slip twixt the cup and the lip. Someone's tipped him off, Charlie, is that fair to say? That feels like it can't be a coincidence. It's like someone has shaken the ketchup bottle of Hellenistic Greek proverbs, Dave, and out they came. <laughs> they come spilling. Yeah. <laughs> Great to see Gary getting on board. I, I was at that match and I'm just trying to think when he would have said it. 
probably after Ipswich took the lead to go two one in the 80th minute. So and that, and which took them like top top of the league. It was like a big moment for them. So uh, may, maybe maybe he was saying sort of you know don't celebrate too much yet sort of thing. Must have been in that window. Fans went mental. So it could have been specific to that game, or it could have been about the rest of Ipswich's season. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, actually, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They might you know die away for the rest of the season. You never know. Yeah, because it went they went ten points clear of Leeds with that win in third uh, so yeah that is a possible window for it well I got in touch with Gary Taphouse top bloke by the way just to check it wasn't sort of you know monumental coincidence and he said someone dared me to do it and I just can't <laughs> resist that sort of challenge great suggestion implication here Charlie there's a little commentators whatsapp group yeah we're, we're paying at least a small amount of rent in their heads I wonder who I wonder who dared him if it was a yeah. fellow commentator or, uh, or or just one of our many listeners although I mean no that is really good I, I would have loved the idea that it was a, I mean if it was a coincidence that would have been absolutely extraordinary but that does make more sense or even if you'd just been listening and gone mm, you know what I really, I love that I'm going to yeah, use like that, that next time it's a bit of a tongue twister like just to roll out in the middle of a game so good luck to anyone else who tries it right following on from that very baffled sometimes by what qualifies to have a graphic made up on Twitter for a certain stat Charlie usually it's like I mean for example Mohamed Salah's 150th Premier League goal for Liverpool got the immediate graphics treatment because almost like they were prepared in advance that's you know fairly understandable it's all fairly tedious to be honest the um, I mean no offense to graphic designers but I, I am completely desensitized to it but here how about this one after Bologna's 2-1 win over Salernitana on Sunday, the English-language Twitter account for Serie A tweeted this. With the win tonight, Bologna FC have surpassed 2,900 points in Serie A to many more clinking glasses <laughs> emoji. 2,900 what? points! Why did they just wait for 3,000? Yeah, it's, what, it's two and a half seasons or so? What's the rush? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> did, they do, did they do one for 2,800 points? <laughs> have, they been, have, they, have they been following the journey? I don't know. I am not across the barrel of English language serial content and how much it needs to be scraped, but that seems to me to be a stretch. But, Dave, I, so I've, I consulted the all-time Serie League table just to check they haven't sort of leapfrogged someone in the table or something like that. Maybe there was... But they're like 500 points ahead of Sampdoria. They're, they're about 10th in the all-time rankings. So, you know, there's nothing to it, basically. 2,900 points. What a complete waste of time. But, Dave, I was impressed by this. The 2,900 points barrier that they have passed does take into account the fact that Serie was two points for a win until 1994. So they haven't just gone blanket three points for a win the whole time. Okay. I mean, that's impressive. Yeah. Someone somewhere done some good work there you could adjust it i suppose for inflation with an asterisk or something which would be mental obviously yeah um to go into a slight aside whenever i hear a reference to two points for a win i'm just like Woof. i just can't get my head around it that it, that it happened for so long when you look at a league table with two points for a win charlie it's just like what yeah. you have to do the maths to check you think oh this is nonsense but what was that totals. what was that thing they had as well the goal average uh, as one of the differentiators. So you get that chucked in as well. Fascinating to look at that. Just two things on that as well, <laughs> building on Bologna. One is the, we talked about the what a job he's doing there. Thiago Motta, what a job he's doing there. What would we say for a kind of foreign club? Or is that just not something you ever really hear? Over there? Over there, maybe, yeah. It's, the sentiment is particularly valid because it, it, it could be that they're creating such a reputation for themselves that they could be a Premier League manager one day. And obviously, you know, Premier League is the centre of so many people's footballing universe that we kind of, we do it that way, very insular. So the sentiment definitely works. I just don't know about the phrasing. I don't think you would go geographic with it. We've, we've talked about tearing it up before, but I don't think a manager can tear it up in a division, can they? It, I mean, it really depends on the context of where this conversation would be taking place if it was an english podcast or media then maybe but it's it's, it's unlikely that they're gonna get onto bologna 
and Thiago Motta, unless you're talking about like the up and coming managers in I've, in Europe. Yeah, but, I feel like you would only say over there if it was an English manager or a British manager doing the business over there. Otherwise, I don't think it's necessary to cite it. Anyway, on to the real business for today. It's the listeners' mess at Harland Dicks for December. A lovely selection of your very, very niche footballing fascinations and irritations. Let's kick off with the former. And the first comes from Jacob Fricker. One of my fascinations of football is that after years of watching social media clips, I am convinced that I know about half a dozen words in a dozen languages, thanks to various broadcast rights issues here in America. I think I know the words for referee, foul, and various swear words, all thanks to social media clips, even when I cannot speak any of the rest of the language. Charlie, it's definitely one of the sort of subtler forms of language absorption kind of football terms. There's arbitro, which I guess is... Is referee, that's presumably mm. the one he was going for. Allenatore is manager? Yeah, but they talk about mister, don't they, in, yeah, think, in Italy, in a lot of those yeah, countries. Sort of, in technical terms, it's definitely Allenatore, but I think mister's more of a sort of colloquialism. Gaffer, isn't it? maybe. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it's, yeah, equivalent of gaffer, isn't it? Is Italian, Dave, the most likely language for this to happen? Maybe Spanish is coming up on the rails for this, but I think Gazetta's got a lot to answer for here. Well, yeah, I think Gazetta historically, yes. I don't know though. No, but the thing is, it's like, would you have heard Gazetta would have been in all in English? So like, yeah, but it's the theme tune, isn't it? Yeah, but it's like this and guy's talking about actually watching matches and picking out, mm. which I think is more of a modern thing with watching streams, yeah, and mm. that sort of thing, or living in other countries maybe, and and experiencing, you know, watching B in sports maybe or whatever. But like, yeah, I, I'd imagine, I'd imagine it's obviously yeah, Italian and Spanish have got to be the main two, obviously. I mean, you yeah. hear a lot like trek artista, regista, catenaccio, mm. all of those phrases that. Are have kind of entered the English mainstream. Yeah, um, they sit nicely Italian on the periphery. They're, they're sort of, they've been given like a work permit into the English football language, haven't they, yeah, I but, think? But those are like words that have come to us through, mainly through Football Manager, really, or, you know, World Soccer Magazine or something like that. This is a different thing, really. And it's not something I've experienced, to be honest with you. I, I don't, I've never really sat down and watched foreign language coverage of football for any long period okay. of time. But like, occasionally you'll play me, a, you'll play us a clip, Adam, of something that's happened in a league. And, and, and it's that thing of like, picking out a word and you sort of think you know what it means just by the tone of how they're saying it and you're trying to translate it into English blindly in your head and you can get it and you get it right more often than not I think Charlie there are kind of a sort of formal updates from clubs on Twitter presented in their native language and it, it's amazing how much better your grasp of certain languages are when you read about injuries and managerial sackings the language is very accessible let's put it that way yes yeah and quite a lot of overlap happily I mean there are other little things as well like we talked about in the La Liga episode about how they would have the minutes and then they would have one T and two T and I remember that was tiempo wasn't it yeah, which meant like the, the second half what's funny as well you see a lot of this with aggregators for different clubs and they will translate what's been said on Google Translate and often it's quite idiomatic language and it comes up with this kind of nonsensical translation. What I get as well, like I follow some Italian journalists like Demazio who does transfers and he always talks about parole and the first oh, time right. I looked at it, I kept thinking like, is someone in trouble? You know, like what's happened here? And he'd be talking about someone and be like, are they, they've been arrested or something? And parole means words, it turns out, oh, which right. makes a lot more sense why he keeps talking about people people's parole. I just thought there was some other scandal in Italian football going on but that was useful to know I look forward to that creeping into English football reporting. Um, uh, one of the Dutch phrases I had in mind for this sort of accessible foreign language was, was the Club Bruges tweeting out that they'd sacked Scott Parker with the words, Scott Parker is neat langer hoof coach van Club Brugge. <laughs> uh, and I just thought, yeah, yeah, I think I can grasp that one. Yeah, lovely stuff. Although we talked about sort of illegal streams, Dave, 
perhaps being a portal into improving our sort of vocabulary in other languages. My Mandarin has not come on over the last 15 years. I can tell you that. A <laughs> um, lot more work to do. Maybe Duolingo needs to come in there. Right. We asked our listeners, Charlie, about similar phenomena, about sort of random elements of vocabulary creeping in from absorbing football. Rudy kicks us off with, uh, I did Arabic at uni. So I lived in Jordan during my year abroad. Played football every week with a load of Jordanian guys and a couple of expats. I tried hard to learn as many names as quickly as I could. I never realised that Harris was such a popular name as I kept hearing it every game. I soon started using it when talking to the lads called Harris. Only the week before I left did I realise it means keeper. Harris! That's good. Home if you need. (laughs) I wonder what Arabic is, but back if you need. Yeah, Harris means keeper, apparently. Joel says, as a kid... Jogo Benito, to me, was a series of incredible videos featuring Ronaldo, Ronaldinho and Thierry Henry. I lost my shit when I realised what it meant in Portuguese. <laughs> I mean, I guess this sort of stuff must happen. You know, And it's such an extreme absorption of a certain phrase through football where you don't have any comprehension of what it might actually mean. You just appreciate it in its own right. And then you suddenly realise what it actually means and you think, oh, wow, OK. But And, and that phrase has transcended itself, hasn't it, as well? Really, because it was such an iconic. Nike got hold of it. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It was the, it was the, you know, the, the videos of them in the airport and those classic adverts and all that around. The- that was before Jogger Benito, I think. Yeah. Like it was part of that same thing, but I think they coined the phrase a bit later. I think it was more like 2006 World Cup. That exactly, really which is it. kind of my point. Really, it, it it has kind of come to be a blanket term for all of that kind of stuff. Given the respective kind of um, dignity of using either phrase, Charlie, I'm probably more likely to say Jogger Benito than I am the. Beauty beautiful game in English. So that's quite the balance. David Ward, Charlie says, faltas cometidas. Anything yes. sort of related to yeah, sort of yeah. basic stats at the bottom of the screen. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't absorbed that after sort of five, 10 years, then what are you playing at basically? Yeah, those are good ones. I mean, but you hit, you see that quite often actually, don't you? People from Spain talking in English, sometimes they talk about faults when yeah. they mean fouls. And and, oh. and it, it can, yeah, it can cause a little bit of confusion. Huge amount of confusion. There was a great interview. I forget, you, you will definitely remember what the incident was, but it was Pep Guardiola talking about fouls and he said fault. Yes. And, and and the, the post yeah. interviewer thought he was saying it was somebody's fault and he kept pushing yes. him on it. I was like, no, stop. No, yeah, yeah, that was great. That was, was really, really awful. good. It was skin crawling. Some phrases, Dave, have just become sort of almost meme worthy. There's a comunicado oficial, which again, doesn't take much translation, but it's really taken on a meaning now. I think it's brought, passed into sort of admittedly Twitter culture, but it's yeah. become more than it's some of its parts. Do you hear it in Sunday League as well? I remember that there used to be a bit of that would go around being like if there was an official announcement about a game being off or something, sometimes it'd be prefaced with a comunicado oficial. I haven't seen it much in Sunday League, although I bet loads of teams in our league have, have used I it at a point. But, um, I bet it's right. We got a lot of comunicado oficials when we when we came back as a pod, didn't we? Yeah. In the summer, there was yeah. a lot of replies of that nature. I didn't I didn't lower myself to it personally, but it's fine <laughs> <laughs> for others to indulge. Um, I mean, campeones or campeones, however you want to say it like yeah. that. I of... like the butchering of it. I like the sort of reclaiming it in, back into English as campeones, Charlie. I would happily sing it and, and not be ashamed. Yeah, I think that's fine. And um, speaking of butchering, I'm well aware, by the way, when I said parole, that it will be, it, that is not how it will be pronounced. So you don't need <laughs> to point that out to me. After preposition gate, on uh, earlier this week. I don't think we've got a leg to stand on. It's fine. Let's just embrace it. Uh, how about this one, Dave? This is on a slight tangent. Berdino says, Allah was very popular, but dying out now. Andy Gray used it a lot, as in to mean in the manner of. I, I, had to say, I don't like saying, you know, Allah, Thierry Henry. I just, I find it, I find it, you have to, you have to kind of pause to say it. So I'm not keen. I, I would take an esque kind of suffix, but I, I'm not keen on Allah player X, personally. I think it's a bit, I think it's a bit much. I don't know. I think used in the right way. 
Charlie, right, a little quiz for you then. Are you an et al man or an and co man when talking about a group of players? Well, et al is basically just the Latin, et alia. And being a classicist, I guess I would go with that one. I don't like and co. I actually, it annoys me, and co. And co. When do you use and co? I think it's like when you're coming up against a sort of set of very good players. Ooh, Next yeah. week they're coming up against... Uh, Kevin De Bruyne Bruyne and Co. Co. (laughs) Hey! Is Kevin De Bruyne the most and Co player in the Premier League? I'm not sure he is, actually, but I'm amazed that we both said it at the same time. Very delighted by that. Um, Right, let's move on to our second fascination from our listeners for December. And this one comes from George. And it's a weird one. My favourite thing in football is when two players from opposing teams who have the same number are fighting for the ball. I don't know what it is. When a 14 and a 14 go at it, or a 10 and a 10, or an 8 and an 8, there's just something juicier than when it's a 5 and a 10, or a 6 and an 8. It's not the same. I don't know why this is. I don't know how many people in the world even care or recognise that this is happening. Might be playing too much for a manager, but it just does something to me. Dave, I'm always very happy to include in Listener's MHD a selection that, you know, completely baffles me. There's something a bit creepy about those last lines there. <laughs> <laughs> but fair enough. Hey, fair is enough. It though, Dave? Let's, let's, not, let's not kink shame. No, I was going to say, this is a baffling little fetish, Dave. <laughs> I mean, what's the appeal here? Like, can you, can you sort of... Can you sort of draw out any appeal from this for yourself? It's just nice symmetry, right? Yeah, I guess so. I, I, weirdly, I did notice this last night at, at Watford against Ipswich. And okay. one of our centre-backs, Ryan Porteous, sort of kind of took himself up front towards the end of the game when we were chasing chasing it. And he ended up going like going up for like a long ball to sort of try and win a flick on against their opposite centre-half. And they were both wearing number five. And because he was trying to flick the ball on, they, he had his back to me when I was sitting behind the goal. So I saw the number, the two numbers very clearly and it did sort of register in my mind of like, oh yeah, that's a bit, a bit weird, but you don't really see that very often. <laughs> how, how much does it add to the spectacle, Charlie, when two players wearing the same number go for the same ball? Actually, and, and, and on top of that, one of the examples that George cited there was like a number 14 going against another 14. D- is it diluted when it's a squad number or does it make it more cool? No, I think it's that makes it less, more. more rare, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't... I can slightly empathise with this. I always find it, if I happen to spot it when the clock on a game goes 59-59 I always feel a little frisson of excitement Fair which enough. is similarly mad but if yeah. I notice it 59-59 just for some reason does a little something to me maybe not quite to this level same sensation I imagine yeah. though yeah, yeah I, it's just like oh that's a bit odd and I've got a second to enjoy it I'm more of a basic 100 minutes man I have to say but uh, I do appreciate the symmetry of what you're going for. I think my favourite bit of this, Charlie, and whilst I'm not particularly on board with it, although I do appreciate that someone has noticed it, my favourite bit of this was when he started listing mismatching shirt numbers, (laughs) just in case we didn't grasp the idea. Yeah, absolutely not eight and six. That that, that wouldn't work. No, you got to list more of them just well, to get it but home. The thing is, at least at least eight and six, you're in the times tables. There, it's, 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 it's nicer than it's nicer than if it was an eight and a and a thirteen. <laughs> so even numbers are fine. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Jesus Christ, there are grades of this. I had no idea. George, you're on your own, mate. <laughs> absolutely on your own. Um, let's move on to more familiar territory, more comforting, reassuring. Fascinations of football, I think. Xander Davies. It basically involves players getting caught in positions they're really uncomfortable in. So the ones I've thought of, of thought of at the top of my head are this is my favourite one, a centre back. Basically a corner's been overhit and it's a big 
tall, slow centre-back is running to get the overhead corner and they end up 1v1 with the full-back or the defender near the touchline and they have to try and beat their man and get the cross in and it just looks so unnatural and wrong. Or another example would be like an old-fashioned defensive full-back not known for their attacking capabilities and they get found through one-on-one and they do that weird, gross thing where they quickly get a scuffed shot away just like they look petrified to be there and it makes them look painfully average. But I don't find it painful. I find it very enjoyable. Love seeing players being made to look average. Charlie, I hoped he would pick towering centre-backs suddenly finding themselves out on the wing as the primary example. This is the peak of the subgenre, no question. It, it is amazing. Not as good as that, but related is when a fullback is over on the other, is on the wrong, their wrong side. I know nowadays fullbacks are more, yeah. more creative where they can go, but when you've got like an orthodox fullback who's maybe taken a set piece or something pops up, it just looks so weird. I was talking about this recently, actually. Uh, there was a really good example was in the Sp- City Spurs game. Jeremy Doku had to defend against Son and he is rapid and yet trying to defend, he was completely useless going the other way. It was honestly hilarious. It was like, was it reminds wouldn't let him do it is that it what was you're just saying like, i don't i don't know what i'm doing it was basically like it, it looked like in rugby when you get a prop or something out pops up on the wing and a wing is just flying past them so it was just get, uh, it was a mere foot race it was just a foot race but he just didn't know what to do it was just like <laughs> i can't run the other way I just yeah can't do I, was, it. I, I don't know where my body should be like That's i'm just amazing and it because you get it in other sports like you'll see like a bowler batting or in tennis like big serving doubles match and then a rally breaks out and one of the players just like oh shit i was really not prepared for this and it's really funny to watch it's so good when it happens but yeah that doku one i just was like how how is it that hard to just run in a straight line when you're that quick but you couldn't do it dave let's 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 dig into Xander's primary example here, the centre-back who finds themselves out on the wing. And, and the scenario that he he suggested was bang on, an overhit cross. And then they have to sort of leave their mission <laughs> to go and retrieve the ball. And, and um, when he said that then when they get the ball, they turn it into a kind of one-on-one versus the opposition player... I, I never envisage it, and I swear this is the truth. It's never a case of them turning and then going up against, you know, and sort of facing them up and, go, and going either way, a dribble. It's They've got their back to goal, and they're essentially trying to figure out how to recycle this ball in the most efficient way. And I swear to you, I swear, every time a defender finds himself in this situation, facing the touchline with the ball at their feet, opponent at their back, they will do a step over. They do it. <laughs> like a proper old-fashioned swing of the leg step over. I feel, I feel like they feel like... This is my only chance to do it. It's great. Yeah, definitely. You, and you'll, you'll see players, yeah, who just think, you know what, I'm going to go for this. They fancy themselves. And playing centre-back at Sunday League, I've been in this scenario loads of times. And Well, actually, no, not loads of times, like very occasionally, obviously. And when you do find yourself in that situation, it's like it's like there is that little bit of, oh, this is good. Oh, oh I'm, up, I'm on the wing. This is my chance. I can whip a ball in. I could maybe beat my man. And more often than not, you end up, yeah, the cross will just go out for a throw-in or... Or whatever, or you or you or maybe you, if you do get it past the first match, just sails right over the crossbar like a real, like a real. You've gone to whip it in, but there's no arc on the ball; it just goes straight <laughs> over the goal. Trotting back, like, like I've done my job and more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a kind of breathless panic, but to there's it, nothing expected of you. That you're technically able to do it. Yeah, nothing expected of you though. So no one's ever going to give you a bollocking for not putting the ball in and stuff. But I, well, I do feel that these days in the in the in the professional game, you're more confident in a centre back having the ability to do something thing with the ball I just think with the general technical level of players being that much higher these days like you will sometimes people will surprise you and they'll pull out a little move or they'll or they'll do something interesting well this begs the question then Charlie who is the most wingery centre-back in the Premier League but just on that just quickly on the sort of nowadays okay. they should they should be better I think what's so great about this is they still 
seems uncom- I think there was one recently it was Gabriel the Arsenal centre back who's you know decent distribution but he looked so lumbering as soon as he was asked to do what's being asked here someone who would actually be able to do it Nathan Ake maybe yeah I guess he plays that he plays as a fullback he's too, too fullbacky isn't he yeah, yeah not allowed fullback you're not allowed you're not allowed the Luke Shaws of this world I can imagine R- Christian Romero dropping a shoulder and whipping across him with his right foot they're all just too tall to be wingers aren't they they really are just all big old feet that's it not allowed. I think another one that comes to mind is, and this is quite rare, you know, I like it when you do, when you do occasionally see it, is if a goalkeeper's gone up for a corner or a free kick at the end of the game or whatever, and they, they somehow sort of find themselves, the ball coming back to them at some point when they're on the way back. Like maybe right. they, maybe they <laughs> find themselves in the middle of the pitch with the ball at their feet, or or even if the ball's come to the edge of the box, and or, or maybe they've been that centre-back that we're talking about. Maybe they've gone to get the overhit free kick. Oh, that's but, the dream. Anytime, that is the dream. Yeah, anytime Still a goalkeeper's got the ball at his feet in the opposition final third, for whatever reason it's just like wow how has this happened absolutely I think Charlie in that scenario I, I, I just think it's it's very jarring despite knowing what's going on it's very jarring to watch any human being attempt proper football that is ball at their feet play with gloves on I think it's yeah. I think it's, almost, it's just something really cumbersome yeah, yeah. looking about it it's where gloves does no favours I think right that takes care of your fascinations for December we'll be back with your irritations very shortly Welcome back to Football Clichés. We've had some very obscure fascinations for this month from the listeners. Now it's time for your niche irritations. Let's start with Dan Sanderson while walking his dog. Hello, gents. Right, my irritation with the game, I like to call it advantage fishing, right? And this is when Team A have the ball, player one passes the ball to player two, and then player three on the opposition leaves something on player one. Absolutely nothing, maybe just a brush of the shoulder, never a foul in a million years, right? However, team A retained possession, so the referee does his little thing with his arms and says, I'm playing advantage, right? And the only reason he's doing this is so that there's a chance the commentator, if it leads to anything, will say, well, he's done well there, the referee. Oh, well done, playing advantage, letting the game flow. But it was never a foul in a million years. And the second irritation, which is intrinsically linked to this, is the inverse. Same situation, but this time, player three leaves a little bit more on that player, right? It's a foul. Nothing more, nothing less. But this time, the referee blows up straight away, fails to play advantage. Team A are angry, obviously, because the advantage hasn't been played. So, in this situation, the player who made the foul is 80% more likely to get booked than in any other time during the game. He's taking the punishment because the referee failed to play advantage. And he's going to give him a yellow card for a foul that never warranted one in a million years. But calms down the other team because he's like, well, you know, I was booking the player. That's why I failed to play advantage. When I first opened this one, Charlie, and heard that it was about playing advantage, I I expected a surface level irritation about when referees don't play advantage when they should do. (laughs) A la Simon Hooper at the Etihad very recently. Now, it turns out that it's it's more more of a deep situation than this, and I think he's picked two very good aspects. Let's deal with the first one first. It's the cheapest, it's the easiest earned piece of refereeing praise, isn't it? Almost regardless of how much of a material effect it has. Yeah, I did think about this the other day, actually. I saw one and I did think like, I really don't know if that is a foul, but it's completely inconsequential. It really, it doesn't matter in any way. So it is just a free hit for them. So that's a, that is a very good spot. Dave, are we, are, are we agreed that the bar for 
sort of declaring a foul that they didn't have to award is quite low when playing advantage. Like it's almost any any tackle whatsoever, I think, is a bit like... Because it's almost... Because it's also serving a secondary function. It's almost a bit like, by the way, it's not a foul, carry on. That It also kind of communicates that. It's like, just get on with the game, it's fine. Because there is a big difference in terms of the, the, the body language and the signalling of the referee. Play on would be just sort of maybe beckoning a player to get up or just is there an official play on thing maybe maybe we can work that out for the live show and do it on stage arms out that's actually playing no, advantage. That's, ad, that's advantage that's what i mean you know play on play on is different oh. it's sort of subtly different to, to advantage because advantage you're acknowledging that it's a foul and they, potentially there could be consequences later which i know is sort of referenced in the second part of dan's submission but yeah there is there is a slight difference i think you, you often hear a co-commentator going that's a good advantage yeah from the ref really good advantage letting the game flow spot on great bit of refereeing there from a great bit of refereeing that's what they say yeah you never hear you never really hear a bad advantage saying oh see i just think should have pulled i think they'd rather have the free kick there actually and there are some situations where that is the case and you can see players sort of pausing for it charlie yeah i've made that point while playing football before a ref played you know you're under the cosh we'll have the free kick yeah you just want the free kick you're desperate for the free kick like we don't this crappy advantage we get we're we lost the ball like seconds later just give us the free kick James Ward Prowse with like three defenders in front of him, ball at his feet, going, ah, I'm not up for this at all, thanks, mate. Oh, that's like the free kick. So, okay, so this, yeah, so so part one here is very much the unwritten rules of playing advantage. Now, this second one, it, this second one's superb, actually, Dave. It is such a good observation. It is, again, it's kind of, it's kind of like one of the unwritten laws of football. If you commit a foul that is sufficient enough for a referee to override their sort of inclination to play advantage and bring it back, you are more likely to be booked. Because it's almost like you've ruined this. You've ruined it for everybody. <laughs> Did whoever fouled Haaland get booked in that in that game? Emerson Royale. He, he did get booked because it's almost a bit like because you could tell Simon Hooper was like I've got to book this guy hold on hold on I'm booking him it's like an olive branch that's exactly it with that Simon Hooper one that's what I was saying at the time I think he was just so keen to get the admin done and get it done quickly he was like I don't really want to be playing this for too long I want to be able to bring it back because that's also gets an applause often from commentate not just playing an advantage but then bring it back he's done really well there he's tried to let it go there hasn't been an advantage and he's just pulled it back. But he did have the look on his face of a man who knew he'd fucked up but was stubbornly sticking to his guns. But his the look on his face completely betrayed his inner feelings, certainly. You do occasionally get a ref who will, will go back and book a player after advantage has been given. But sometimes the passage of play is so long and you're, <laughs> you're left there in the stands going, well, is he going to book him? Or is it too yeah, long? Or it might be too long forgotten. now. Yeah. And this works either side of the fence that you're on, sort of support-wise. If it's your team, you're thinking, hope he forgets, hope he forgets, hope he forgets forgets and if you're the other team thinking please don't please don't forget definitely book him don't you forget you little (laughs) it's it's amazing but so charlie the booking you get for a tackle that forced the referee to bring play back i would argue is as disproportionate a booking as the booking a piece for a little bit of a contretemps with no sort of punches thrown where the referee just goes right that's it one each bugger off yeah yeah yeah. more so yeah Great little hacking of the refereeing code there by Dan Sanderson. Next one comes from our friend Andy Bell of Jonathan Johansson fame. Something that disproportionately does my head out about football. I'm watching Aberdeen against Rangers here. The Rangers 1-0 down and there was about 10 seconds to go until the end of the first half. And I hate it when teams, especially when they're losing, but also just in general, 10 seconds to go until the end of the first half and they just pass it about until the halftime whistle. Like, why not just have a shot? Surely they have some concept of the time. There's bound to be a big clock somewhere in the stadium. But the amount of times the teams just pass it around, wait for the halftime whistle, you've literally nothing to lose in having a shot. 
absolutely infuriates me. Charlie, I think this is almost scoreline agnostic. It makes no difference what the score is to me. And also, it makes no difference to whether it's a team I care about or not. Every team should should treat the last 30 seconds of a first half, injury time or not, as the last 30 seconds of the game. You are not going to concede as a result of hoofing it up and giving it the full kitchen sink treatment. And if the other team are clearly not going to expect it because it's not the done thing, it's even more worth trying. I wonder if there's an element to which some players are so... It's so ingrained in them like doing the right things that they just would like even even in that context they'd be like I know I'm not supposed to shoot from here so I've just played the square part. It's not so much shooting; it's so much like just, you know, like getting the ball up launching into the it. mixer. Yeah, launch yeah. it absolutely because you know no team is above doing it in the 95th minute. So why wouldn't you do it in the 45th minute? There's nothing to lose. But Dave, so Charlie has suggested that it might be a kind of sticking to the game plan aspect of things, which I kind of agree with. You know, players are well drilled and teams can be tactically, you know, in shape and all that sort of stuff. But I also think maybe it's just learned passive behaviour. The last minute of a first half is just where it winds down and like they sort of they settle for it, don't they? They sort of settle for what's going on, especially if it's a draw. And you think, yeah, we'll get in there, we'll get in there and get the message out and then come back out fighting in the second half. But no, keep fighting for the last 15 seconds. I think that is definitely part of it because there's just this natural human element of knowing that, oh, you know, I can sit down soon. I can yeah. I can have a drink and I can just, you know, we're, we're there, it's fine. But I also think that the the universally sort of accepted theme is that conceding a goal right on half time is mm. is seen as much worse thing to do no one ever talks about how great it would be to get one before the break but conceding one before half time is, is such a, such a, a thing that it just must be avoided at all costs kind of like an unspoken agreement of like okay we'll just play out these last few minutes and we'll, we'll yeah, get it's in it's like a truce yeah. it's like a weird little maybe Charlie they've all got Andy Hinchcliffe's voice in their head saying, well, if we concede, he's going to go potty. Can I just ask a question on that? Because uh, Michael Cox and I were talking recently about how, like, back in the day, there was so little coverage to what there is relative relative to now that one thing could just take hold and just become accepted wisdom. And I'm convinced that so much of that half don't concede a goal just before half-time discourse comes from the 2002 quarterfinal between England and Brazil. England conceded just before half-time and Brazil went on to win the game 2-1 and scored a goal shortly after half-time. And it was all that was said after by whoever was the pundit for BBC that that's just that it's the worst time to concede. And I'm convinced that that has had such an outsized effect on how people view that. Yeah. I just like there's because at that time no one would interrogate that. Now, if someone said that, you'd probably have an athletic article saying, well, statistically, what is the worst time to concede? Is it that bad a time to concede? No one did How that. How would then. you measure it? Just, it? Yeah, How could you even true. pin it down? What well, minute to I guess teams concede where they're most likely to go on and lose? I, I guess you'd see if it disproportionately affected, <laughs> like when conceding an equal. You'd have to break it down to when conce- When's the worst time to concede Someone an equaliser? Must have done this. Someone must to have eventual done outcome. I hope so. But Charlie, there's an added aspect to this. Maybe we shouldn't be pinning it on the players who are making either a sort of conscious personal decision or a collective, you know, shape keeping decision. The general atmosphere of the 45th minute lends itself to sort of petering out as well. Fans are getting out of their seats. There is a there is a distinct 45th minute hubbub. In a stadium, isn't there? If if I play to you a sort of selection yeah. of fan audio, I reckon you could guess the minute on that basis alone. You'd know it was nearing halftime. Well, this is like my theory that goals and incidents very rarely happen during minutes applause. I really think they 
instill a kind of friendly testimonial atmosphere to that one minute. Likewise, that period straight after halftime often is quite quiet when people are still coming back after um, getting halftime drinks and things. We should factor this into the live show, shouldn't we? Sort of really sort of stop bringing the pace down before the interval and then just gently (laughs) ease back into it. Don't any of the good stuff straight after. It is amazing how that this this mentality is so deeply ingrained in us. Because for the third time this episode, I'll reference Watford against Ipswich last night. And, <laughs> oh, I love and, that. And we uh, Watford got a free kick in. There were like, there were two minutes of, of added time in the end of the first half, and Watford got a free kick in a really good position out wide in the forty sort of sixth minute, or whatever, in the first minute of, of, of added time. And I just didn't believe that we were going to do anything from it despite the fact that it was in a great position to whip it in. I mean, you could have even taken the keeper up. There was that little time left. It's like, why, as you say, why not just throw everything at it? Everyone up, just whack, just whip it in and we would have been 2-1 up. I didn't believe as a fan that anything was going to happen. I think maybe the players just, they, yeah, it's just that belief that they can't believe that this could be a thing. But the, sometimes uh, there's a portion of every crowd, Charlie, that does join in in this and say, Fucking do something! Like you can just see that they're they're passing it, tippy tappy in it, like a <laughs> proper football man would say. And and the fan the fans are getting genuinely annoyed that they know that time is running out, and they can especially if you're watching on TV and you know that the seconds are properly ticking down, and the referee's about to blow. Even the referee's just like, "What are you doing? I'm about to blow. Why aren't you doing anything?" Poster Coglu in a preseason friendly basically said that for the last few minutes before half time, he was like, the, "The players were basically just not doing anything. They right. were just playing for half time." He was like, he gave them an absolute bollocking. Yeah. Uh, during the breaks he was like why Why have you done that in which case you can kind of see like a young up and coming manager unleashing a 45th minute tactic in the same way that you know Bournemouth's kickoffs were briefly like a thing weren't they the way they sort of they, they overloaded one side of the pitch if you're turning that into an advantageous situation why wouldn't you turn what is historically empirically a lull into something good for your team. Andy, have you heard this? They've got a stoppage time, coach. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, sign me up. A stoppage time, coach. Get a little laminated folder as soon as the clock hits 45. <laughs> Pointing it at people. You get up there. Go, go, go. I'd love it. Absolutely love it. Right. <laughs> okay, excellent stuff. Let's move on to our final irritation from the listeners for 2023. Here is Fred Asquith. Is this current phase of the season where everyone's talking about how it's the best title race in years. We're going to have three horses in the race, maybe even four. But then really it's just because we're at the perfect apex between enough games played to justify the discussion, but not enough games played for the top pack to split, which they inevitably will. By the time we get to February or March, the top pack will have split and it'll be a one or maybe two horse race again, as always. And we'll forget we ever said that it was the best title race for years. And then we'll say it again next year around December. Now, Charlie, this is this is a slight dagger to my heart. And I imagine a lot of other people's in terms of, you know, our early season kind of optimism for a competitive title race. Before we get stuck into that aspect of it, I want to ask you, is this really a mid-December fascination? I would say it's more of like an August thing where you say, well, look, we're looking like we could have a proper title race this season. And it's purely hypothetical. August? August. That, well, that's a different thing. That's a different. Okay. I think that that's that that's a before the season starts. It's like you know, Chelsea have got stronger. United, they're only going to get stronger. Like assuming every team gets stronger, <laughs> and that's so why it's well going to be five. <laughs> this I do think is around this time. <laughs> Could be. Um... Uh, I love it when you nail it. I have to say, I do love it. <laughs> 
could uh, th- this could be slightly earlier than this, but I think now is good. Uh, and linked to this, and what always annoys me about it is when clearly it's a surprise, like Villa now, it would be like, you know, how, you know, how, how are Villa doing? It's like, well, th- there's no secret. They're a very good side. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, but they're not actually going to win the league, are they? And then it's like, but you know, ha- I think we have to take them seriously, don't we? It's like, well, in a way, but also think- do we? Because they'll probably lose at Brentford on the weekend and then they'll be out the race again. There was a lot of this after the after Villa beat Man City on the Amazon coverage. I think it was Kelly Summers, Enia Luko, Gail Clichy and Martin O'Neill were the pundits. And the exception of Martin O'Neill, who curiously didn't ask a single question to Unai Emery at any point, um, all, all three of them kind of asked variations on the same. They were kind of pressing him saying, yeah, but can you win the league? Come on, come on, say it. Say it, you can win the league, can't you? And he was just not, absolutely not engaging at all. And it is a thing that we just have to say it. But I think even they know deep down, it's just like, it's nowhere near, they're nowhere near it. You know, and they obviously they're, they're, they they have to, managers and players kind of have to toe the line and be reasonable and sensible. But I just think we should know better by now, really. That, and I, it's, a, it's a natural impulse because we want things to be exciting. We want to hark back to the days of where we, three teams could have won the title on the last season. Although, has that ever happened, actually, in the Premier League? Maybe, yeah, maybe actually, once, that was going to be my but... question, Charlie. Charlie, you'll know this better than anyone. Have there been more competitive title races than we sort of think there have been? Like, have there ever been sort of three or four teams in the mix? Or would th- is that just a reflection of a really shit division when you've got four teams? Well, 96-97, which was when United won the league with 75 points, a record low, was good or bad, depending... Like, the teams were just kept dropping points. They were sort of stumbling along. And in the end, actually, United did wrap it up one game before the final day, fittingly, because both Liverpool and Newcastle dropped points. There aren't many... Where, where you've actually got m- multiple teams till late on. So, Charlie, if this is a truly mid-December thing, and I sympathise with it, because as Fred says, the kind of apex, you've played enough games for it to have a solid basis of foundation, and then you've got this element of forecasting for the rest of the season as well. So I quite like this sweet spot idea. And that sweet spot is where you can start using phrases like, are they the real deal? And you wouldn't be able to say that in August, but you, when you've got that sort of 15, 16 games of evidence, like Aston Villa, then we have to say, oh, do we have to start taking them seriously? As you said. So that that works. But then, of course, you've got, as Dave cited, the playing down, the art of playing down. And you can only start doing that in December when your team are in an unexpected mix for Champions League places or even in a title race. And there was a real... This this happened so much, and I love this. John McGinn was quoted the other day as saying he's banned the T word. Yeah, yeah, I saw that, yeah. (laughs) No talk of titles around Villa Park or Bodymore Heath. (laughs) <laughs> the T word how many words how many inoffensive X words are there in football the T word I guess the R word R word's good yeah new managers come in and say he's banned talk of relegation the R word very I- different for two I mean T word obviously is not tempting fate R word is trying to like build positivity isn't it I think that might be the uh, the, the only two PG words in football there must be a P word isn't there Dave in the championship yeah yeah I'd say oh okay yeah. Yeah, same principle. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Love that. <laughs> You'd never hear it, but would, would an international manager talk about the Q word? <laughs> Should be. I it's mean, the same principle. Can you imagine like, the whale, an earnest Wales manager saying that? Banned talk of the Q <laughs> word. Love this podcast. Love it with all my heart. In summary then, Charlie, do we have to look at ourselves in the mirror every August and think we're being a little bit naive here? There will only be two teams ultimately in the mix for this title race. I don't care how much better Team X have got. I don't care if Team Y have regrouped 
from last season's debacle. But you can get away with it. You know, the innocence of August at least allows you some cover to 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 speculate that Team X, Team Y have got stronger. There's new players, whatever. There's just natural optimism. I think that's fine. It's at this stage of the season, as Fred says, we kind of we've been here so many times before. We can spot the signs as well. We can spot the momentum. We can we know that Man our Man City really in crisis. You you can you can kind of have a bit of a feel for it. I mean, even up to as late as like March, I think. I remember that was a great example of this. And this was like Adrian Durham, kind of at the time knowing what he was doing, but it was done really well. It was the season where it was Spurs, Liverpool, Man City in who all could still win the title. Spurs were a distant third and they went to Burnley, that game where Potch went mad after the final whistle. Which season was that, Charlie? 18-19. But before that game, Adrian had looked at the fixtures. I think there was like about 12 games left or whatever. And because they played Man City, he worked out that if they win every single game they, they'll be champions trying to play with the sort of permutations <laughs> it's, in it's in their hands and stuff and it's like no and he was being facetious a little bit but <laughs> no. like you still get these people no we want there to be a title race I always want there to be a title race and it is annoying when you can just feel it slipping through your fingers and it's just like not going to happen, is it? Yeah, and I sure. also think the other thing we've not mentioned is that the Leicester factor does loom large over this conversation. Yeah, and I, I was going to say, and like, I, I held my hands up because that season, it took they me it by 10 points. so late before I accepted they would do it for this reason. And also, it, it's entirely justified for people to do it because it reflects... Of course, we want a title race. And there's, you know, and especially in this age where City win every year. What I can tell you is that if Villa win every game from here on in, they will be champions. <laughs> that is a fact. Okay, so yeah, it's in I their see. hands. The heads to heads. Okay, nice. On an only slightly tangential note to finish off, I fell into an awful trap the other day. I was talking with my father-in-law about the state of the Premier League table <laughs> and he's a Fulham fan. And he said, you know, these home games at the moment, the sort of games we need to win just to make sure we steer clear of trouble. And I said to him, don't worry, the teams down the bottom are pretty rubbish. You'll probably be steered clear. In fact, you probably won't even need 40 points to stay up this season. I did it. I fell into the trap wow. of guessing, the futile guess of calculating how many points you'd need to stay up. I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> I certainly don't care enough to put an actual number on it. What did I do? What have I done? Madness. I can't believe I fell into that trap. That's what happens. That's what happens with the in-laws. Is 40 points still, is is that still the recognised amount or has that changed? It's the magic number. I mean, it's, it's still the magic number, but it it doesn't bear much scrutiny. It should be moved up and down like the Bank of England's base rate. It should, like 39. Just move it to 39. Make that <laughs> the magic number. It's not a big deal. Easy to remember. Just as much as 40. The magical 39 point mark. Good to see us having an earnest discussion about the number of points it'll take to stay up in the Premier League this season. Great stuff from you, the listeners for December. Love that. Thanks to you, Charlie Eccleshare. Thank you. Thanks to you, David Walker. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening. And please do join us for our live tour in 2024. Manchester, Birmingham, Dublin, Leeds, Bristol and London. Wherever you are, join us. It's going to be great fun. And we'll be back on Tuesday. See ya. See ya. 